0: I think talent attraction was probably the second lever that we found was really important to us. It's a war for talent at the moment. There's so many people hiring and there's plenty of things. We wanted a way to differentiate ourselves from every other software company in Australia or on the globe. So it's a huge one for us. The week that we announced the four-day work week, we saw 3x uplift in our inbound applications. And what we've done in addition is, you know, the remote work is the future is what we see. And we handed back the keys to our Sydney office in July. And what we are doing now is we're giving every member of our staff globally gets a quarterly stipend that allows them to you know, either buy a co-working membership, pay for electricity at home, pay for their internet, buy themselves a nice chair, and really make sure that they are able to focus on their remote work environment and be able to function the right way. So we've really doubled down on the remote working, as well as trying to be as flexible as we can for all of our staff.
1: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Episode 5 of the Good Money Podcast, a show brought to you by CAPE. We're an expense management platform helping businesses cut wasteful spending and get control of their cash flow. For those of you joining us for the very first time, my name is Ryan Adams Pritchard. I'm the host of The Good Money. I'm here to bring all of you good people up close and personal with some of the great minds from the world of finance and technology and to help share their stories, unearth those gems for us all. And with me here today, I'm very fortunate to say, is Ben from Indebted, the VP of Finance over there. How are you doing, man? I'm well, thanks, Ryan, and yourself? Good. Happy Freedom Week, I guess. How does it feel to get yourself out there with the family?
0: I'll be perfectly honest. I think the first breakfast out was probably the highlight of my week so far. The first breakfast, what did you have? It was a classic big breakfast. One of the things that I've been waiting for for a couple of months now, someone that is bringing me food rather than it sitting in a Uber Eats delivery bag for about 3,000 years before it gets to me.
1: It sounds like they've improved their SLAs if that's only 3,000 years. I think I've been waiting about four or five at times. Well, so big breakfasts, it's been a good week and we're all ready for the show thank you for coming on today. There is so much to unpack. So I really want to get straight into it. I guess the first question really is kind of, we've obviously had a chance to chat in the past, in fact, just about you, your background, which is fascinating. Love for you to just bring us up to speed a little bit about your backgrounds, because it is fascinating coming from the world of engineering into accounting. How did all of that come about?
0: Yeah. So it was one of those interesting things that I've fallen into. So I came out of high school really liking computers. Obviously, that meant that I had to do something computer related as a career. I tried that out and realized that it wasn't really for me. One of the big things that I realized was things that I enjoyed as a hobby didn't necessarily translate into things that I enjoyed as a job. So made a call to effectively try and do something a little bit more boring and tried my hand at accounting. Find myself studying accounting, realised that I had at least some aptitude for numbers, and did my degree. And then started as a grad at Deloitte. At Deloitte, I was an auditor in their mid-market space, a service line called Deloitte Private, which really focused on you know the small, to medium enterprises and the private companies of the future, rather than you know the big top end of town, which is what uh, some of the other audit teams in the in the business covered. So gave me a lot of grounding in terms of being able to get in on the ground floor, understand some businesses that are in that rapid scale-up or rapid growth phase rather than those more established businesses, and also exposed me to a lot of tech organizations as I went along. So I spent a few years as an auditor. During that time, I spent a lot of time in the tech space and had a number of clients in that tech space during the audit days. I then moved over into corporate finance as a lateral transfer and then kept working with a number of tech clients over the course of the next few years. was at Deloitte for almost five years, came to the point where it was either I wanted to kind of go down that long-term professional services path or wanted to try something different and decided to leave and go into industry.
1: Wow. Just to kind of take a step back in terms of Deloitte, I mean, such a well-trodden path and kind of it's interesting just hearing you talk about the mid to large cap organizations. What kind of size of organization were you typically going in to work with in that case?
0: The smallest one I did was about 50 people. The largest one I did was about two and a half thousand people. Revenues anywhere between $5 million business to a $300 million business. Really focus on that entrepreneurial side rather than the large institutional side.
1: Right. Okay. So those that are kind of more on the cusp of scaling, growing, trying to eat into market share as such, as opposed to those more kind of incumbents, what you're typically kind of looking after in that case. Exactly right. Right. And then during that period, I can imagine that you see a variety of different scale and organisations. Did you get much exposure
0: within the M and A team over there as well? That happened when I transferred into the corporate finance space. So one of the big things that they were responsible for was financial due diligence, so investigating companies on behalf of potential acquirers, really spending a very short, short amount of time getting into the business really understanding it, putting together our understanding of the business, our view on quality, and then reporting that back to acquirers in a very short space of time. So those engagements were quite rapid, but also gave you a chance to really dig in on get into the weeds a little bit in terms of understanding how businesses tick.
1: It's an interesting area though, because I'm sure I saw a stat quite recently that was saying two thirds of all acquisitions are somehow value destructive, which I can completely understand but it is to say that you are literally just burning money as soon as you go down that path. I guess the need for before you even entertain buying anything, you need to know how it works, how it's all put together. And that's one part, and I'm assuming that's where you'd be coming in from the Deloitte perspective, and how do you try to ensure positive gains? But then there's a whole other side of the coin here where I guess the more kind of quantifiable, qualifiable, the softer side in terms of the cultural side in the sense of How do you ensure that you don't crush the butterfly? The fact that cultures are such an important thing when you're acquiring a company that if you hug the thing too hard, you're going to kill it. So acquiring is such a delicate thing. What were the lessons that you learned through that period, both the kind of hard and the soft side of that process? would be really interesting to hear.
0: Sure. So I think it's very easy to initially just boil down an acquisition to financial metrics. I think a lot of acquisitions will make 100% sense if you look at it in terms of it's accretive on a cash flow basis or with synergies and savings, You know, this will be a very successful acquisition. I think what people fail to realize is how much of the human element the acquisition involves. It's a very disruptive process for both the acquirer and the acquiree, also a very disruptive process for everyone around that situation. And what we tend to find is during a longer protracted process, both companies can take their eye off the ball if they're not careful. Because one of them The acquiring side is heavily focused on what they're going to do day one and may take their eyes off their ability to execute their own strategies in their own business. And the acquirer is merely sitting there waiting for day one to occur. Yeah, that and the earn out to be over so they can get on their merry way, right? Exactly right. So the financial side is only one component of a successful acquisition. There's a multitude of other factors that also go into whether something can be successful or not.
1: Interesting. So, moving from that in the world of auditing, it didn't keep you in too long. Five years is a good stint, but you managed to break free. What came after Deloitte in that case then?
0: When I decided to leave Deloitte, I ended up reaching out to a number of clients at the time, seeing if there was anyone interested in me joining their organization. And one of the organizations that came back to me was a company called Focus Communications. So, at the time, you know, it was about 50 people. I think I was employing 52. And we were about 150 mil market cap. So it was an ASX-listed telecommunications company, been listed for about four years. And it was really focused on internet infrastructure. Came into that business, the title was, I think, completely meaningless. It was the commercial finance manager. But really, the agreement was around anything that wasn't part of the day-to-day. So it was basically a jack-of-all-trades function. One day, I'd be working on tax. One day, I'd be looking at treasury strategies other uh, i be preparing investor relations packs. It was effectively, as a small business, but still reasonably sized and on the ASX, there was plenty to do with a very small team.
1: Again, it's just fascinating when you say, looking at Vocus at the time, is it 50 people, you're saying? Correct. Yeah, obviously it's kind of scaling throughout, but I kind of always kind of typically find that once, even on our case, you know, customers, the point they start reaching 2025, that's when people really start moving away, not say completely, but... Accountants, bookkeepers, they might start moving away and start having some form of accountability internally within the business itself and then start building out some kind of finance function. You comment around the vagueness of a title that doesn't really matter because it does happen in early stage startups, right? You all have different titles, but you are literally, as you say, jack of all trades. How big was the finance function when you
0: first started then? It was about five people, including myself and the CFO and a financial controller, and then two or three other accountants. Pretty small in the context of a company that was listed on the ASX.
1: And then over, how long were you there with Focus?
0: So I was there for, again, almost five years. We grew from that 50-52 employee stage up to 2,500 employees in that five-year period. And that was, I think, at its peak my team was 25, 30 people.
1: Wow. That is insane growth over a five-year period, 50 people to 2,500. That is incredible scale. How did that even come about?
0: It was a combination of, I think, two very important things. One of them is we timed our market entry into a very specific segment almost perfectly. So when we started the business, it was largely reselling internet between Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. but pretty soon after, we acquired a fiber network business. And with that came a large infrastructure build and building effectively fiber infrastructure for businesses. This is well before NBN or anything like that. And it was really about improving business connectivity, business internet connectivity across Australia and New Zealand. So over the course of those five years, we made probably close to 25 acquisitions. We sold a couple of companies as well, made some pretty big bets in terms of what companies we go after, who do we merge with, really spent a lot of time focusing on making sure that we were just building a really, really big network. So it was a techie's heaven, basically. Just 25 acquisitions over a five-year period, that is, again,
1: is incredible, even on average, to say that you'd be going about five per year, one every two months, just about. It means you're constantly acquiring, month in, month out. Was that something which then became a core part of your role going through the M and A piece with Vocus?
0: Yeah, it became part of the day to day. We'd spun up a special projects function that's really focused on the minutiae and the execution of those deals. But a good part of my week, every week, was either looking at potential acquisitions, organising the financing for potential acquisitions, or announcing those acquisitions as well, and also the integration of those businesses into kind of the Vocus corporate group.
1: What was the vehicle of choice in terms of funding that through the years? How did you go about that? It's a huge competitive advantage if you can actually work it out. You know the playbook in terms of integration. As we mentioned before, in terms of crushing the butterfly and being value destructive, like the same, you could just be burning through cash. What was the approach, first of all? And love to hear anything else that you'd learned through that kind of exercise over the five-year period is what people can take away to make it successful.
0: There's a few things. One of them around funding is it's really dependent on the type and nature of what you're trying to do. One of the benefits, but also to the tractors of being on the stock exchange is you've got the ability to raise capital in a series of days through the public markets, but you've also got the scrutiny that comes with it. It can be a double-edged sword, but our funding vehicle of choice was largely raising money from our shareholders and using those shareholder funds as rocket fuel effective way to accelerate the business and create supernormal returns for our shareholders. Second type of funding we used was largely bank debt. It's quite easy for us to raise bank debt, given that we were working in the infrastructure space. It's very easy for the banks to understand when you've got things in the ground. But trying to do that with a tech business can be a lot more difficult because it's much more intangible. In terms of learnings from an integration perspective, there's probably three. The first one would be planning is your friend. A lot of the things that you want to do from an acquisition or acquisition merger, what have you, probably all goes down to what your initial planning and also your planning coming up to day one. The engagement with the other side, your plans for the future, making sure that you get the people that you want to keep on board ahead of time. All of that is important to make sure that on day one, they just don't take their check and leave. You want to avoid that if those people are critical to the organization as a whole. So what that means is through your diligence period, you need to really identify who those key stakeholders are and lock them up. Make sure that one, they're either happy or they're contractually happy to stay in the business. The second one is there's plenty of mergers. And as you said before, that mergers and acquisitions can be value disruptive quite quickly. One of the things that I've learned is if you're ever offered an opportunity to merge two businesses together, I would say don't do that. The reason I say that is when you merge, you do a merger of equals. So, you know, you've got half of one side and half of the other coming together. The biggest risk you have is that there's no clear pathway to leadership. You've got no clear path of which way the business wants to go. It's probably much better for both sides for one to be an acquirer and one to be an acquirer to allow for effectively one culture to win going forward. The last one is, I think you really need to consider what you're looking for out of an acquisition there's plenty of ways to grow. Acquisition can always appear to be one of the easier ways to buy revenue, but you also need to be aware of the distraction factor of M&A. A bad acquisition can suck 12, 18, 24 months out of your planning or resourcing, which can mean that you know instead of being able to execute on your own internal corporate goals, you're spending more time trying to fight fires just to protect the revenue base that you've just acquired. That's a really useful framework to actually have in the back of your head. I couldn't agree more
1: with the first point. I'd say quite often to our team, what is an organization other than a group of people that have come together to agree to build and make something? And then equally from an acquisition perspective, you you take the people away, the thing can just fall over within a matter of seconds. So just thinking about the viability of that is super important. Clearly to go from 50 to 2,500 you took on a lot of people through that journey. So you must have been somewhat successful in terms of managing to maintain them throughout, I should surmise, through this. Was there anything that you learned, I guess, from the failures? We always talk about the successes. and Was there anything else that kind of really stood out for you?
0: I think one of the things that stood out for me, one, from a success side, was trying to make sure that we embedded the right culture and values. One of our corporate values was no Muppets. We had a picture of Elmo on the wall. Just people understood exactly all we're trying to be. We want to be the top people working hard and executing. One of the failures, I think, was where we overcommit. So we look too closely at the financial metrics of an acquisition versus understanding a bit more around the people and culture and the alignment of that business. In that acquisition, what happened was there was a what seemed to be a very strong cultural alignment at first glance wasn't. And what that meant was it created a level of dysfunction across the business, across the combined business, because the alignment wasn't there. In terms of you
1: over there with Vocus, what was the point after five years kind of scaling to that point? I mean, you've seen phenomenal growth through that period. Was there an obvious point where you fell out of love, I guess, with the role or felt like it was time to kind of do something different? Because I mean, after close to a decade there in terms of Deloitte and then what turned into a kind of big business with massive market cap. What was the turning point for you to say, well, actually, now I'm going to tap out and see something else? Was there anything particular that triggered it for you?
0: One of the things for me was I like building things. And when we got to that two and a half thousand. When you started a very small business, it's really fun because you can touch everything. You can measure your impact very, very quickly. The bigger you get, the more it becomes less fun, at least from my perspective. you know, Some people do enjoy working in larger corporations, but I think I prefer to be in that kind of initially scrappy, but high growth scaling type of company. The kicker for me, I think, was through a bit of dysfunction that came through from one merger too far that we did. A lot of the people that really made focus what it was left the business over the course of about 12 months and probably prompted a level of self-reflection for me as to say whether this is what I want to continue with or do I want to work with something smaller.
1: You clearly like building. To go from 50 people to two and a half, from what, 50 mil to 5 billion market cap. Man, you like to build. You clearly build well. What was the next step on the journey for you?
0: After that, I put my hat in the ring and started to look at other opportunities, I ended up joining Safety Culture. Of course. Now I'm one of the great unicorns of Australian tech At its core, it's basically a checklist business, but it's so much more than that now. I joined that business when it was 80 people. It had just closed its series B. And effectively, the remit there was to build the finance function for scale. It had to date had really just survived with a bookkeeper and what was a very strong accountant, but they really wanted to accelerate growth. It was a global day one SaaS business. So for me, it ticked all the boxes in terms of it wanted to scale, wanted to scale aggressively. It had funding in the bank, and it had a really cool story behind it, and something that could really change the world. So many questions.
1: First of all, eighty people, and they had an accountant and bookkeeper. Well, there goes me saying that at the point of 20, 25 people, most people tap out. <laughs> and they start building out their team. So actually, clearly, there's different thresholds, different tolerance levels for different businesses, and theirs was 80. On that point, in terms of big mission, big vision, I love the fact that you were just talking about the values with Elmo before. Clearly, this is something which is important. When it came to safety culture, what was it that really drew you in on the value and on the mission point?
0: Yeah, so I think it's funny because people think of checklists as a very, very simple thing. But what Safety culture is trying to solve is, is safety and quality globally. And if you think of safety, it sounds very boring and it sounds like people in hard hats and high vis. But in a lot of cases, getting it wrong has very material impacts. Some of the products they were looking at with terms of food safety, yeah, food safety, high construction, all of those things where there were lives at stake and getting that right means that you are protecting those people. But also the relative simplicity of it. It sounds simple, but the humble checklist became something that every company uses. So it was a business that could be delivered across almost any vertical.
1: Not just any vertical, but also geographically, as well as you're saying. So an international business pretty much from day one by the sounds of it. Exactly right. When you joined, did they already have the international footprint or was that something that you focused on when you came in?
0: It had some international business. So a small bit in the UK and the US. But really, it was still very early days. We were getting a lot in terms of just organic revenue just from like credit card subscriptions and that. But we hadn't really delved deep into what I would say high volume or enterprise sales at that point in time. And that was really one of the big drivers. But the initial strategy was around that land and expand. So start small, build teams. But we ended up finding that a lot of big companies were using it. And one of the ways to really get a big ticket sale coming through is how do we engage both at that team level, which where we get that really strong kind of organic land and expand, but also once we've landed that customer, how do we get it across all organizations? So a company like Qantas, their aircraft maintenance people were using the tool as one team, but if you could then deploy that across all of Qantas' operations, that's a very different value proposition on its own. I
1: don't know if you're much of a gamer, but I'd always kind of describe it like, it's kind of like that multiplayer approach. It's a team of people coming together on that mission and you've got to kind of look at your go-to-market strategy, especially when you're talking about enterprise in a similar kind of way, in the sense that there's multiple different people, there's multiple different parties, and you've got to kind of try and find the common ground. I think the thing that we kind of often look at is, again, to use the kind of analogy, but rabbits, deer, elephants, in the sense of the size and complexity in terms of the customers that you're actually kind of dealing with and the volume of them as well. And that is to say that your elephants, your kind of enterprise, huge things, right? Can take some time to actually kind of like reel in. Whereas your rabbits, you know, small barriers to entry, you can work directly with. There is loads of them, but from a value perspective, perhaps not as great. And then your deer is something kind of like in the middle of the two. And there is an element whilst understanding whether it's a quantity or quality perspective, but then also understanding where your product offering is at in terms of your ability to actually help different personas within like the multiplayer game, but from sales, marketing, operations, HR, finance, and having something which is actually tailored to all those different users. Whereas actually, it can be somewhat simpler to start off with the rabbits and actually just, I don't want to say kind of point and shoot, sounds like a hunting analogy now, but like a straightforward solution that you can actually help them out and build out the product. Rich features over time, whatever product you go to market with, it's not all the bells and whistles. But at that kind of point in time, when you joined Safety Culture, 80 people that were doing well from a fundraising perspective, were they already at that point that they had quite a feature-rich solution and actually they could afford to just kind of go straight into the dais and the elephants of the enterprise companies that are out there?
0: Interestingly, I think it was still doing it around that small team, five to 10 person product, but the product itself was so robust at a team level that people that were trying to buy it from an enterprise perspective kind of got over the foibles or the gaps that you would otherwise expect from enterprise software. I think it's an interesting one in terms of a product executed absolutely well for a very specific cohort can still deliver value to an enterprise, but you can also argue over objections if the product is good enough. Totally
1: agree. I think it's the go-to-market strategy and how you enter and the Trojan horse effect is you need to be well-thought with your approach. And I guess the thing when you start looking at enterprises, not just the sales cycle itself in terms of the sheer length, but then it's the complexity and like actually how much time is taken away trying to go through that. And then how many resources do you need to account manage and actually oversee those Gigantic elephants, as opposed to the smaller wins to get on the board with the rabbits, with the deer. And I think there's just a balance with all them. But I mean, ultimately, if you can find a way that you can self service those elephants and you can bring them in and you can have a short in sales cycle, then it's an absolute no brainer. Yeah, you know, it's a enormous opportunity. Just going into the mechanics of the team, though, because it is an interesting one looking at the fact that you went in there, just an accountant and bookkeeper, 80 people. It'd be fair to say then. You know, Working on the business, working in the business, you obviously have done that before where you having to wear both those hats. I'm assuming that with safety culture, it was a mixture of both where you're back to jack of all trades because there isn't anybody there. There isn't defined processes, systems
0: yet in place. That's correct. I think what you realize that it's kind of a series A, series B startup is that you have to wear all those hats. And much of that ended up being, well, if no one else is going to do it, I might as well do it. So at one point, I'd be putting a lawyer hat on, not only am I a lawyer, but I've seen enough contracts in my time. So looking at legal agreements and looking at doing employment contracts and shifting gears and looking at the financing and then going back to understanding what a spend analysis is. You have to be that jack of all trades because you are effectively trying to move a business forward and everyone is wearing those multiple hats.
1: Going into that scenario, and again, for anybody else that's listening possibly seen from some of the other episodes, we've had the likes of Chen from Car Next Door and Nathan from Airtasker. Amazing businesses, amazing platforms, fast growing for you. Clearly another in terms of fast growth startup. What were the things that you found? Were there any kind of lessons that you'd give to other people as going into that kind of business straight away That's just like, yeah, these are the quick wins. These are things that you can do like in a situation where. There isn't much maturity in terms of a financial department. This is where I'd start to look to basically strengthen both the operations and potentially also the cash flow.
0: The two main ones, I think, is your first kind of two, three weeks is really sitting down with every stakeholder in the business and really just trying to understand how everything moves. One of the big things that I try and focus on in my first few weeks is really to get a sense of how things move and how things fit together but also where the pain points are. And a lot of those pain points end up arising through no fault of anyone. They just exist because the process was put in place when there were 10 people. There's now 80, but no one's ever thought about or looked at the process. And a lot of that came down to... An example I'll give you for that is where people are buying things for the company. At one point, you know, we were spending probably five, $6,000 a month on fava beans, for example, as healthy snacks. One of the first things I did was really just try and understand what our cost base looked like, where things were coming from, where things were going. As with all kinds of scale-ups, your biggest cost is going to be headcount, but there's so much low-hanging fruit outside of the headcount costs where there's very easy wins without necessarily being the stereotypical finance guy that doesn't want to spend any money.
1: Five or six grand on father beans a month.
0: That is incredible.
1: That's a lot of beans, my friend. Or good quality, I don't know. I mean, like, what the hell are these
0: beans? apparently they're very healthy. I'm not a big fan of them, but apparently they're healthy.
1: Right. Okay. So it sounds like coming in day one, it was kind of the forensic scientist kind of-esque getting the microscope out and kind of looking through line item after line item as to where spend was going. By the sounds of it, there wasn't budgets, there wasn't control. And perhaps I'm assuming here that there wasn't parameters around how people would spend company funds in that case, or on what they could spend. I mean, clearly... Unless there was a mandate out there that you could spend six grand a month on Father Beans, I don't know.
0: Yeah, and I think that goes to towards that kind of transparency and visibility piece. I think a lot of it becomes you give people the ability to spend. What happens is that the spend grows faster without any kind of counteracting control. So if you think about it, if you were organizing snacks for the business when there was five people in an office and then there were 80 people in the office. You think that things flow linearly and you start buying more and more things, but they might not necessarily be the right answer going forward. You might think of, okay, well, it was what I was doing when we were at a 10 person office. Would that be the same thing if I've got 80 people in the office? Having scalable processes, operations, and guardrails around how payments are
1: made, I couldn't agree more. If there is only a piece of software out there that allowed finance teams to give access to their employees to payment mechanisms, in a responsible way with tight controls and rules around the payment method and budgets, my God, that would be pretty dreamy, my friend. I'll leave it there. But that's one not to kind of self-promote. But clearly, it's not a unique situation. We obviously speak to finance team CFOs all the time, and everybody's got a slightly nuanced or unique story to sometimes provide. But it's a very much a common problem in terms of the issues around spend visibility and the kind of budget controls that you can put in place so that you can give your team, your employees access to company funds in a really responsible way without kind of worrying that they're going to spend obviously six grand a month on father
0: beans. The way I look at this is, you know, none of what we try and do as finance people is about putting roadblocks in front of people. The only way to scale a business is to give people guide rails, but also empower them and provide them with trust. You want people to move as fast as they can but you also want to make sure that it's within the boundaries of what you want to do as a business.
1: I couldn't agree more. I think the relationship between people and money is such an important one. I know we'll come on to that even further, more from a consumer perspective shortly, but just kind of from the perspective of an employee and an employer, that kind of element of trust and being able to take the friction out of people just Going and doing their job, I think, is super important. The thing that we quite often talk to teams about is where they haven't got trust in terms of the system or the software. You know, quite often it's not to name names, but they might be using a large corporate card provider incumbent from the States, which really kind of tries to encourage people to spend as much money as possible to get access to points. There isn't any guardrails around actually how people spend. So what do then the finance teams do? Like Ultimately, they say, well, actually, you don't get access to the company card. The only people who get access to the company card are the directors. And you end up in a quite weird situation where it's the most junior employees in the business who don't get access to company funds because supposedly they can't be trusted. But then what they do get asked to do is, to go then use their own funds to go purchase, maybe it is their father beans, whatever else it might be, but they get asked to go and make those purchases and then put in the receipt for the finance manager, finance team to then actually approve and then push through payroll, whether that's a month, two months down the line. And the crazy thing when you think about that entire story is you're asking a lot of the time, you know, your junior employees and staff to essentially give you some form of working capital to give you a loan which is pretty crazy, right? When you actually think about it. But again, it's about how do you ensure that you've got the right processes, the right software in place so you can responsibly give your team access to the resources they need to be able to do their
0: job. A hundred percent. And think of it this way, how fast could you move as a business if everything that you wanted to do, you had to go ask someone else for the company credit card? It's a massive, massive distraction and massive time suck for one, the person requesting, but two, the person that has the card as well.
1: Oh, I couldn't agree more. You hear so many funny examples. They're not funny, they're cringeworthy, but where the amount of times you talk to people and you ask about what's the process around kind of accessing company funds or kind of what are the control parameters you guys have got in place. And you'll often hear people say, well, I'll be in the office and I'll kind of walk basically down the aisle and I'll just shout over to Alan or Trevor, whoever else it is, can you pass me the company card and what's the pin? And when you ask them, oh, right, okay, so what, they just hand over their card? Yeah, yeah, yeah." And what about the pin and things like that? Oh, they just write on the post-it note. Oh, right, okay, that makes sense. You hear examples of that. You hear examples of people where they will literally print out scanned copies of the one company card across 100 people, 130 people. They're kind of sellotape to everybody's desk so that they can see it. And you're just there kind of shaking your head, just being like, this is absolutely crazy. But again, it's an education point, but the security risks around that are enormous and crazy. And then equally just kind of thinking about things that, that not necessarily made for a digital world where we all work remotely, right? We've all had to basically change our working behaviours, but we haven't necessarily seen the financial systems scale and change with us in the same format over the last 18 months, kind of two years. We've been kind of in, in and out of lockdowns.
0: And we haven't seen banks really make an effort to transition to this remote environment. I still have a certain big four bank that shall remain unnamed, insisting that I need to provide a hard copy signature of a director who is in a different state that can't travel down or can't get to any type of branch. So I've got a request that's now sitting in limbo because they can't understand that digital signatures are a thing. A
1: wet signature. I'd love to say that is crazy and unheard of, but actually we had the complete mirror image of that. When we were actually starting off building Cape, one of our advisors actually because I was waiting to get my own permanent residency sorted. So he helped us just kind of get incorporated, get set up, so we could start doing some legal work, all that good stuff. He's based in Katoomba over in the Blue Mountains. He got us set up with one of the big four, it took us three months. This is in the heart of the lockdown. I got asked that they wouldn't set up me on the account unless I visited their branch in Lura. In fact, it was specifically, but I had to go visit and meet physically eye to eye, the bank branch manager, and do a wet signature there and then. I remember being like, we're in complete lockdown. I'm told that I'm not supposed to be leaving a couple of miles of my own home. But I'm then being asked by the bank to then go travel across state to go do this kind of process, which was bizarre. Unfortunately, you're right. It's rife within the banking sector still. And I think this is a thing right? we all know it. There's new entrants coming in, and there will be shifting how we approach things. But it's mental in terms of how slow big banks and also big tech as well. These players can move. I don't know if you saw this week, but a classic example is Google. You know, Google is just this week actually announced they did try and go into the banking space, but they just closed down. I think it's Plexus, their current account offering, not to say that they were moving slow as such, but it is a complex space banking and financial services. But in terms of taking a digital approach to it, it's definitely what we need in terms of the current environment we're in. So it offers a fantastic opportunity for new startups, new entrants, whether that's CAPE or whether that's others, to go and really kind of meet the shift in demands of the
0: environment and customers' expectations. The key thing, I think, that will make FinTech succeed going forward is that ability to be flexible and agile against these changing environments. Without being able to flex very, very rapidly, I think the risk is that you're stuck with those legacy dinosaurs. Yeah, nobody wants a dinosaur.
1: Moving on from Google and digital adoption, digital shifts, really keen to actually understand more about just peeling back a little bit here, but moving from safety culture to how you went from that rocket ship to the next rocket ship in terms of indebted. It was obviously
0: some interesting couple of years for you. I didn't really want to leave safety culture, but when your former founder comes up to you and taps you on the shoulder and says he wants to give you a CFO role, it's very hard to say no. So I ended up moving to another business as a CFO, tried that out for a little while, but it wasn't for me and ended up taking some time off afterwards. And really after that, I looked at trying to find the right business for me. And I find it important to try and find a business that's linked both from a culture as well as a business perspective that aligns to my values and found that it indebted.
1: Wow. Actually, on that kind of CFO point, was that the first time you'd made and was it a significant jump up into that role from one to another? It was the first time I had the
0: CFO title and it was working for somebody you'd worked for before with a high level of trust. So one of those opportunities I couldn't say no to. Makes sense. Moving from that, I guess the kind of
1: realization that it wasn't the right role. And as you say, whether it was the company, just the different styles, different values, whatever else it might be, but end up getting into
0: Indebted. How did that actually come about in the end? How did you find the guys there? Funnily enough, it makes you realize how small Sydney Tech is. One of the people that I actually hired at Safety Culture was talking to the guys in Indebted, just building networks over there. And they got to the point where they were thinking about getting a finance person. And she told them, you should go talk to Ben. So they reached out to me. And you know, we started having a couple of conversations. It was probably the most entertaining interview sessions. It usually involved beer. And after a few conversations, I realized this was a company that had the opportunity to go global and to go hyperscale very, very quickly.
1: Wow. So it was a very kind of different interview style. And once again, just looking back to what you mentioned earlier on around safety culture, you're coming in kind of at the beginning of actually building out finance function. Was that you coming in again as finance employee number one?
0: Not this time. So there's a financial controller in the business who'd grown up with the business, done an amazing job to get to where they were, but for what both they and we realized was the level of growth that we were expecting and the amount of complexity they were trying to get to a very, very short period of time meant that they needed more resources and they needed someone that had done before. So a lot of it was just timing, being in the right place at the right time, but also leveraging some of those skills and experiences from both focus and safety culture, as well as other roles in terms of how to grow and how to scale businesses. Interesting. For anybody that's not the know indebted, I
1: don't want to say an elevator pitch, but just want to explain a little bit about what it is that indebted do. It's a super interesting business.
0: Yeah. So if you try and paint it in the worst possible way, all you need to say is we're a debt collection business. But unlike traditional debt collection businesses, which effectively use threats and hide goons to try and collect money, we approach it from a customer service lens. So we look at this as you know, it becomes a partnership between our customers that have either fallen bad times or they've just run into a bit of trouble. And we work with them to become more financially fit. And what we found was people really respond to that. No one goes out of their way to go into debt. If you're willing to work with customers, they're willing to work with you. So what we found was we got better outcomes, or the same if not better outcomes than our competitors, but with the customer service focus first. As opposed to intimidation and
1: goons. (laughs) Funny that when you kind of bring that in, that paternalistic benevolence in terms of the arm around the shoulder, come on, let's work it out together, let's educate, we'll get through, as opposed to the kind of the fist, the threats to what the industry has typically had. It's a complete counter position, which is amazing to see the kind of approach that you guys have actually taken. A very, I guess, a unique approach in terms of not just the communication strategy, because I think I was reading how it's across. I guess, an omni-channel type approach, whether it's email or WhatsApp or any other kind of instant messenger, but also looking at how do you time it best to contact the individual and then bringing in that kind of machine learning lens, which I was really intrigued to actually kind of dig into as to how that has informed, I guess, the kind of product strategy in terms of using machine learning when it comes to the debt collection. Is it more in terms of the, I guess, thinking about the, communication channel and the timing, specifically where is it the kind of thinking about machine
0: learning and that kind of side that you guys are bringing that in the key thing i think is that people are moving away from phones and letters to digital communication so we've leveraged that significantly in our ability to actually reach our customers but at the same time i think the machine learning part comes in around what do people respond to how do they respond to them what's the correct time of day Is there the right method in terms of when we stop talking to a customer? How likely are they to respond to different campaigns and different incentives? There's a constant flow of data coming in that helps us with effectively customer behavior, but also helps us engage with them in a more forthright way as well. Okay. On that kind of side, I mean, from what
1: I've seen, the last couple of years, it's kind of felt like even the best when it comes to machine learning companies that are out there, they are more, I guess, advanced regression algorithms than anything else. Algorithms which basically allow machines to learn the relationship within the data itself and then making predictions like the timing or the channel or whatever else. So trying to find the patterns and the rules within that data set. That's what I'm seeing more of within the fintech space. I'm just curious as to how develops the function is with you guys. Because I know from a resourcing perspective, it's something that you're always looking at in terms of the talent within your team and the depth. How mature is that as
0: the offering itself? I still think it's very early days in terms of our offering. I think the platform has so much more to learn and so much more to develop as we continue to grow and change. The power of machine learning is that the algorithm continues to improve. Constantly. You know, I think if I say that we're good now, we would be exceptional later down the track and then absolutely superlative, really, further from there. So for us, it's just a constant experimentation and a constant measurement exercise. And every bit of data that flows through our platform is another data point that we can use to help reinforce and rebuild that algorithm. On indebted itself, because the
1: unique thing looking in terms of the success of the fundraise is that I've been able to kind of Unpeel through various research, there seems to be a couple of enterprise clients that were secured pretty early on, which gave the company. I think you mentioned about the global reach, pretty much from day one, but specifically within the buy now pay later space. And clearly, I know that there's a lot of talk around BNPL and specifically looking at debt and affordability. And so these things do feel like they're hand in hand. But the relationship, specifically with Zip and Afterpay, they were the catalyst that took you guys internationally also, it would appear kind of like helped to underpin a lot of the fundraising activities early on.
0: Yep. I think what we have found is that our focus has always been on digital first communications, web first, digital onboarding, and really focusing on customer experience. And the buy now, pay later space has a very, very similar viewpoint. I don't think if you ever signed up for Afterpay or Zip, you ever took a phone call or you received a letter. You did everything online and it's all about customer service. So we found that there was a really, really strong alignment between the new fintechs of the world and what we were trying to do. Historically, the collections area has been very siloed and very region specific. But with the advent of the Buy Now Pay Laters that are going global, fintechs are now looking for solutions that can service them in multiple markets, not just an Australian provider or a New Zealand provider. So we partnered with Zip as kind of one of our big key customers early on. And, you know, we grew with them. Off the back of that, you know, we landed a number of other major clients, including Afterpay and Klarna, who, as you'd know, they're growing exponentially across the globe. So for us, it's a bit of powerful reinforcement of what they're trying to do is pretty similar to what we're trying to do in terms of trying to democratize finance and make it more accessible to people. But also their fintech business, they're taking a global view rather than just focusing on one market. Yeah. Being able to attract a growth client like
1: SIP and Afterpay, I mean, that's incredible. The scale that you get both locally, globally from day one is huge. And I think the other thing that you mentioned there in terms of the knock on effects in terms of the different kind of sales cycles. The initial sale cycle might have been somewhat lengthy in terms of trying to secure one of those whales. But you know, generally this is just from my own experience. First role was in specifically like advisory and delivery consultancy services within the regulatory change space. And We were selling into the banks. But looking at that, every single time you won a new whale, the sales cycle for the next one became a lot easier to attract them and became a lot shorter in terms of the time itself. So it sets you up perfectly just to then go take down the market. And like you're saying, hang on to their coattails and go with them where they are internationally. What are the main geographic markets for you guys in right now?
0: We're live and operational now in the US, the UK, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. Continental Europe is next on our roadmap and really looking at increasing our scope and size in each of those markets. The setup as well. So in terms of the team
1: specifically, I'm assuming headquartered Sydney, have you got operational staff now
0: on the ground in these different territories? We've got a few people in each of the regional markets. So Canada, the UK. We've got a handful of people. Largely, most of it is serviced out of here in Australia. In the US, we acquired a business to enter that market. So we've got a large cohort of staff in Missouri, and we're growing that significantly as we continue to land key iconic customers in North America. On that customer acquisition perspective, how are you looking
1: at, I mean, especially as you go global and you're hanging on to the coattails of after paying Zip and obviously trying to secure the next ones. But how are you looking at uh, revenue concentration risk at this point? Because clearly, still relatively early stage style. Well, you guys have been going four or five years now? Yeah, about well, five years now. I only ask the question because it's one of these kind of things. Everybody's got a different opinion around revenue concentration risk. You know, if you look at the market, I think it was Twilio not that recently year Euro 2 ago that they lost Uber, which immediately that was 12% of the revenue overnight disappeared. and I think they had a 30% kind of share drop to boot with it. And if you actually look in our space as well, you've got others like Square who account for about 70% of Marquette's revenue, which is just crazy high concentration. Not knowing enough and not to give away any kind of industry secrets in terms of indebted, but coming into the business, how have you looked at that concentration risk? And what have you tried to do from a finance department? Because I imagine that then kind of leans into commercial strategy, marketing, sales, internationalization. So
0: there's many different things that this can impact. Yeah. So I think the core thing around major customers, especially in the markets that we operate in, breadth has power all its own. So if we are in multiple markets with the one partner, that creates a level of stickiness that you wouldn't otherwise see if we were just servicing one company in Australia. While we do have a focus on the FinTech, so it's not a play on buy now, pay later on its own. It's a play on global fintechs. We find that the more that we're able to service our customers in multiple markets, the less likely it is that they'll want to change. For us, we're one of the few providers that can do this globally, and I would challenge them to try and find someone that can service them in all the markets that they operate in. In terms of how we think about things, for us, it's really we're constantly looking at new opportunities. While some of our larger customers and more iconic customers are in that by now payload of fintech space, we do have customers that are different verticals, including utilities and telecommunications, that also require a customer service focus for their collections activities, not the more intimidatory ones that you see in history's compost. I think it's amazing actually just kind of thinking about indebted and in the
1: unique value proposition you guys have, which is that communication point. It sounds insane, but living in a digital world where we're all dependent more so on instant messenger, just being able to converse in the way, the manner, the channel in which people want, that's insane just to think, why aren't more banks going down this path? Why aren't they thinking about doing contract executions via those mediums? And again, I know we talked about this before in terms of wet signatures, paper. It's crazy to think in terms of the gap between incumbents and the new entrants like you guys coming through which is really encouraging. One thing I did actually have to ask you about, and it's been quite a hot topic of late with trends in terms of modern workforce, everybody's talking about remote versus kind of hybrid versus kind of getting back actually into the office itself. I think this is kind of like also triggered conversations around, well, if we're going to start questioning being in the actual office nine to five, should we be questioning the whole idea and concept that the work and week is supposed to be Monday to Friday. Who decided that it was going to be five days a week? And that was what the standard was. And we're all brainwashed into believing that that's the way that we all need to work and operate. And I saw recently that you guys have moved towards a four-day work week, which is
0: super progressive. What was the trigger for that? How did that all come about? Yeah. So I think there was really two key things that we identified. The first one was Everyone is Zoom fatigued. Yeah. We all underestimate how much energy it takes to sit on a Zoom call versus sitting in an office. What we found is that, you know, people are just tired. We're not getting the best out of our people with five days of back-to-back Zoom calls. So one of the big things that we wanted to focus on is how do we improve that work experience? And one of the key things that we identified was there's a lot of what we call dead time. There's meetings that shouldn't be meetings. There's Zooms that shouldn't be Zooms. There's things that could be solved via asynchronous communication versus synchronous communication. And one of the big things that we wanted to try was this four-day work week. because what it does, I think, is also shifts a bit of the conversation in terms of how I manage my day onto the employee. It gives them some flexibility in terms of how they want to run their day and how productive they want to be. As part of the messaging of four-day work week, what we said was, you're now working 32 hours a week. We're still paying for 40 hours, but have Fridays off. But what we suggest that you do is that you have a look at your calendar and you have a look at what you do during the week and really make those tough decisions around what you do and don't need to do. Is that two hour one on one that happens every three days really a good use of your time? Or is it, does this initiative give you the ability to, you know, make your own choices around how you do things and why you do things? From our perspective, we talk about it internally all the time,
1: more so from a talent attraction perspective. You know, I think. The new generations that are coming through, they've got a different perception in terms of what they want from an employer. If you look at the kind of consistent themes that are out there, you know, people want the flexibility to do the side hustles, to learn new skills, to do charitable projects. And they want an employer that understands that. They want an employer that understands that they don't want to travel an hour or two hours on whatever mode of transport it is to then go and sit in an office cubicle to then go and do that again for an hour and two hours. They'd rather be at home and they'd rather be more productive. And I think it's those employers who adapt to this new working style. Ultimately, they'll be the ones that get ahead of the pack. But it does kind of also kind of bring into question borders and especially, I think, in Australia in particular, you know, with the International border closures that we've had over the last, what, 18 months, there's been a real talent drought that we've seen, specifically when it comes to engineers. It's incredibly difficult attracting talent and competitive, I'd say, as well. So again, kind of looking at what levers that you could as a startup or any business that you could potentially pull to try and attract talent, looking at something like that, where you look at the working week and you say, well, we're going to move it from this, from five to four. We're going to change it to your terms. The hope would be that that would be enough to actually bring candidates into the mix and into the fold. Have you seen an uplift in terms of talent attraction? Is that something that you guys had never really particularly actually had an issue with?
0: I think talent attraction was probably the second lever that we found was really important to us. It's a war for talent at the moment. There's so many people hiring and there's plenty of things. We wanted a way to differentiate ourselves from every other software company in Australia or on the globe. So it's a huge one for us. The week that we announced the four-day work week, we saw three x uplift in our inbound applications. And what we've done, in addition, is you know the remote work is the future is what we see. And we handed back the keys to our Sydney office in July. And what we are doing now is we're giving every member of our staff globally gets a quarterly stipend that allows them to you know either buy a co-working membership, pay for electricity at home, pay for their internet themselves a nice chair and really make sure that they are able to focus on their remote work environment and be able to function the right way. So we've really doubled down on the remote working as well as trying to be as flexible as we can for all of our staff. Ben,
1: I absolutely love that. I couldn't agree more. I had this conversation with a well, I'd say friend, somebody from the industry, literally just yesterday, and we were talking about the CBD. I haven't been in yet, but I was curious as to after kind of a short period of it being open, how's it actually looking over there? Yeah, you know, and it's starting to pick up, but it kind of really brought into question, well, what if people just stop paying for those office spaces? You know, and alternatively, what if they put that towards employees and their employee well-being? They could then go and choose how they wanted to invest it into their workspace. Give people the option. I'd be really surprised if people were like, No, I'd rather commute an hour to two hours to go sit in the office. The interesting counter to all of this that I would say I do think it's quite generational in terms of people's preferences as to how they would work. We're a team and we're one small example of this. But in fact, I think I'm the only one in the team without kids. They're all parents and it's challenging. And I'd say one element talking to the team. I know having the office environment or having somewhere else that you can go can be hugely beneficial. We know that we will want to get a balance there. And the other side of things, I mean, if you remember coming through on a grad program or kind of your first job, ultimately, you move to the big city, the bright lights, and you will be most likely flat sharing, probably with four or five of the people, randoms that, you know, you met on flatshare.com or whatever else it is. But you don't really necessarily mind so much because you know that you're going to spend most of your time in that new city with those bright lights out and about, either in work or with your new colleagues your new friends, whatever else it is. Instead, over the last 18 months, People are being cooped up in these unusual situations. And I'd say that for those coming in, those first jobbers, where the work experience is quite important, I think taking into consideration them, taking into consideration parents, I think that's where we'll probably get the balance in terms of this kind of hybrid working style. I think what you guys have done there are really like putting the control back to your staff and saying, you know what, there's the stipend. If you want to use it for a co working space, then fantastic, crack on. But it just feels like, The pandemic's brought about a serious change and shift in terms of how we view that working week and whether it's the kind of movement from five days to four days or whether it's the fact that it is all remote. I think things have changed forever. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you guys are so well backed from an investment perspective. Was there any pushback talking about, well, how is this going to impact us competitively, productively? Clearly, you can talk about the competitive angle as we did just before when it comes to attracting talent. Was there any internal pushback in terms of productivity measures
0: and innovation and your ability to ship by reducing capacity by 20%? I'll be honest, I think there were plenty of fairly robust discussions that we had. But one of the big things that we realized was the talent acquisition was a power all its own. If we say, hypothetically, you know, if we had 10 engineers and then we cut 20% of the work, you know, that gives me eight full-time engineers. If I can triple the amount of engineers I can recruit because I've moved to a four day work week, I've effectively tripled my ability to ship things. So we made a conscious decision as a business that we were going to invest more in our people rather than less. So, you know, in my team, from a finance and ops perspective, we're going to add more headcount to make sure that everyone can take advantage of the four day work week. So I think there's a combination of both. You know, we took a view that's going to cost us a bit more, but the payoff for us will be a more engaged workforce, a more efficient workforce and workforce for someone to stay with us in the long term. Man, that's the snippet right
1: there. That is a powerful way to end the show. Mate, thank you so much for making the time. appreciate you are incredibly busy. For anybody who wants to get in touch, what's the best way
0: to reach out to you? Message me on LinkedIn would be the best way to get in contact with me.
1: There you go, folks. Get in touch with Ben via LinkedIn. Otherwise, thank you, everybody, for listening. That's episode five. Six will be coming to you in the next month. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Looking forward to hearing from you all soon. Bye.